The Warrior Ethic. The Warrior Ethic. From movies like Spartacus, Braveheart, Troy, and The 300, just to name a few. We, especially men, but everyone really, have a special attraction to the warrior ethic. Where in the world does this come from? Is it still valid today? I think the short answer is an absolutely yes. So I can't wait to dive into this lesson. I think in studying the warrior ethic in the book, Readings in Ethics, Moral Wisdom, Past and Present, which is what we're focusing on here in the early stages of this course. It's it's good. Uh, the, the reading is good, but it's not great. So I decided to invest more time on reading about the warrior ethic by adding in a second book this week. And don't get me wrong, Homer's Iliad is a perfect reading to understand the warrior ethic. And I completely understand why the authors put that in there. Uh, but I included this additional reading, and so if you enjoy studying the warrior ethic, I think this second book is awesome, so I strongly encourage you reading it. Uh, it's called The Warrior Ethos. It's by Stephen Pressfield. It's only about 45 minutes, or 45 minutes, 45 pages long, but it's packed with all kinds of stories and myths, parables on the warrior ethic. But for now, let's get into the topic. Uh, I included by the way again that free ebook it's it's listed in the additional resources of this post so check that out as well but let's get going if we take the entirety of human history on a very basic one simplistic level we can divide humanity into really three stages uh, savagery barbarism and eventually civilization most of the warrior codes that we see emerged during the period known as high barbarism. So just to put a date to it, let's say roughly 800 BC to 500 BC is where most of these stories come from. And that just gives you a frame of reference as by this time in history, we have writing, we have systems of writing and languages, and, and we have many large noble cultures during this time and, and they range all the way from native North American tribes to Cyrus's Persians to the Greeks and the Trojans that were made immortal in in, in Homer's Iliad, which you're going to be reading here in, in this particular lesson. Uh, we have to remember the warrior ethic emerges from a very primitive time. But saying that the warrior ethic itself comes from this primitive time it, it still begs a question where did it come from originally and why would anyone choose the hard dangerous life of a warrior what could possibly be the philosophy behind such a choice one action one answer may actually come from the bible and the garden of eden uh, which is an article myth common to many religions uh, more than just the Judeo-Christian, but we're going to focus on that one, and we're going to focus on the story of the fall of mankind, uh, because it's not unique to just one religion or one culture. But let's, let's stay with this very well-known story for our purposes today. So, God sets up Adam and Eve in paradise. 
where all their needs are met without effort. It is truly a heaven on earth existence. There's no pain. There's no struggle. There's no death. There's no work. There's no toil. It's the quintessential story of having it all. But God, of course, warns them and he says, you can have anything you want, but no matter what, under no circumstance, do not go near that tree in the center of the garden. But as we know, humans being humans, of course, they go right to where they were told not to go. And they did the one thing that they were told not to do. So we all know the rest of this long story. And and so the mother and father of the human race choose to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And paradise is lost forever for humanity. And when Adam and Eve chose to become human, they acquire a quality of consciousness that until this moment had only been possessed by God alone. Well, as we all know, we are not God and we will never be God. So Adam and Eve are booted out of Eden into the land of Nod, just east of Eden, and and they're cursed. And by extension, the entire human race is cursed forever. They're forced to work for a living. There's no more easy life. Picking fruit for free from the trees. Instead, they're forced to hunt, to gather chase wild animals, kill them before they before they kill uh, before they're killed themselves and, and Adam and Eve become the primitive, the very first hunting gathering band. These hunting and bather, gathering bands become tribes over time and these tribes eventually evolve into civilizations and armies. So the warrior ethos literally evolved from the primary need, of the spear-toting, rock-throwing, animal-skin-wearing hunting bands. It was driven by a very simple maxim, the need to survive. This need goes as deep as your most inner self, survival. It becomes obvious early that the need to survive was best met collectively as a group working in unison. This lifestyle doesn't work. And people die unless the group bands together and an ethos evolved from this, a hunter's ethos. This will ultimately become the baseline of the warrior ethos. It's well known that in the earliest tribes, the greatest hunters that killed the most game and captured the most food were honored above all. But that warrior, that honored individual gave away the bulk of his food to the group collective knowing his honor and his generosity would be reciprocated when he had a time of need in the future so this ethos of collaboration reciprocity and giving of self they get burned deep into the psyche of tribes and humanity in general Every warrior virtue proceeds from this. Courage, selflessness, love and loyalty to one's comrades, patience, self-command, the will to endure adversity. It all comes from that initial hunting band's need to survive. 
But if we go deeper than just the physical need to survive working together, at a deeper level, the warrior ethos recognizes that each of us as well has enemies and dangers lurking inside of us. We all have inner enemies to slay. Vices, weaknesses like envy and greed and laziness and selfishness, the capacity to lie and cheat, do harm to our brothers, just to name a few. These have to fly in the face of a warrior ethic upon which survival is of the utmost tenet. But these tenets of the warrior ethos, when we direct them inward, in our modern sense, inspires and teaches us to contend against and defeat those enemies within our own hearts. Every culture, every early culture in their own way and their own language describes the warrior ethic. So, for example, the word nang in Pashto language is honor. Nang Nangwale is the code of honor by which the Pashtun tribal warrior lives. Bushido is the samurai code. Heck, every tattoo parlor adjacent to a U.S. Marine Corps base has some design variations of death before dishonor. In all warrior cultures, from the Sioux and Comanche to the Zulu and the and the mountain Pashtun, honor is a warrior's most prized possession. Without it, life is not worth living, and you'll surely see that in the readings. In fact, without honor, no society can live very long. Sure, you can be a scammer and a cheater and a liar, and you can get away with it for some period of time, but in the long run, that's going to come back and bite you, and you are going to fall. See, the Greek warrior ethic is maybe one of the most vibrant and the most detailed Let's just take one fable which talks about how the Spartans sent a general, uh, Gylippus, to, to help their Sicilian allies in the city of Syracuse, which was under siege by the Athenians, which, of course, to the Spartans was, was a mortal enemy. So Gylippus's first job was to pick from the civilian population those men who would make the best military officers. Gylippus instructed his lieutenants uh, to, to seek out neither men who craved wealth nor those who sought power, but to select only those who desire honor. Honor, under tribal codes, is a collective imperative. If a man receives an insult to his honor, the offense is felt by all the males in his family, all the males in his tribe, all are mutually bound to avenge the affront. Maybe a, a modern American brand of honor is evident every fall evening, every Friday through Sunday, from high school to professional football, in the locker room and in the street, back down to no one, avenge every insult, never show fear, never display weakness, play hurt, strike hard and fast, and never quit. At Thermopylae in 480 B.C., the Persian king Xerxes, at the head of an army of nearly two million men, demanded of the Spartan king Leonidas that he and his defenders lay down their arms. Leonidas, Leonidas responded in two words. Come and take them. 
The American Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe one-up Leonidas, surrounded by the Germans at Bastogne in World War II. The commander of the 101st Airborne Division replied to the enemy's demand to surrender with one word, nuts. Warrior cultures employ honor, along with shame, to produce courage and resolve in the hearts of their young men. Honor is a psychological is the psychological salary of any elite unit. Pride is the possession of honor. Honor is connected to many things, but one thing it's not connected to is happiness. In honor cultures, happiness, as we think of it today in the United States of America, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, Freedom to sip Starbucks lattes and post silly stuff on social media or own the latest and greatest cell phone for $1,500. That's not recognized as good in the warrior ethic. It's weak. It's for the undisciplined. It's for the soft. So what would be happiness in these ancient honor cultures that valued the warrior ethic? Well, it's pretty simple, actually. It's the possession of unsullied honor. Everything else is secondary. When you read from the Iliad or any of the the 45 pages from the other book on the warrior ethic, this truth becomes brutally clear. So let's dive a bit into that core reading for this lesson. Uh, The Greeks looking at Homer and the Iliad. Homer probably lived in the 8th or 7th century B.C., He was traditionally depicted as a blind bard and just some guy who wandered about and told stories. He is known as the author of the Iliad and the Odyssey. However, this fact is almost surely a bit misleading since it is evident that the works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, were almost certainly, like other early works, they were the product of a long oral tradition which was passed on and embellished from generation to generation. Homer didn't create the story. Instead, he is the one credited for writing it down, codifying it into lore with brilliant, beautiful prose. as an absolutely stunning work, uh, as you'll read. The, the Iliad and the Odyssey represent a very sophisticated, highly developed uh, exposition of the, of the warrior ethic that is a direct product of tribal life in early Greece, maybe even earlier. But both works see the ideal warrior who is held up as the epitome of manly virtue, as a praiseworthy figure where honor is held above all. Uh, That warrior ideal, which is still part of military tradition, glorifies bravery, strength, loyalty, the willingness to give yourself to something larger, Um, are are all strong military virtues. So it also cherishes that sense of honor and related notion of dignity, which take on larger-than-life dimensions since the world in which the warrior ethic comes into play is a world of pain, struggle, and ultimately death. Honor can persist beyond the grave and bring respect, loyalty, and reverence to a family name well beyond the warrior's death. And you're going to see this very clearly clearly when you look at, at, at Achilles um, and, and the killing of the, of the great Trojan warrior. So mastery 
in war is physically, intellectually, and morally difficult. Just to recap some of the specific virtues associated with the warrior ideal, which do include loyalty, courage, obedience, strength of character, it's vital in reading a work like the Iliad that you understand the mental state of the warrior. Homer's ethical interests are well-developed and more personal than in most other tribal traditions. Since his primary focus is on the proper attitude of the moral hero towards his own death, the depiction of the warrior in the Homeric works is reflective. And like the Greek tradition, generally almost philosophical, The self-reflective aspect to the warrior demonstrates how the world was changing, even in Greece, to a more philosophical rather than purely physical perspective, like the earliest of the warrior tribes. It is notable that the ideal warrior in Homer is intelligent and is extremely shrewd. Uh, The ideal Greek hero is a realist. He understands that the route to success in war and life more generally sometimes requires cunning. Uh, In the Odyssey, for example, it is Odysseus who is seen as the artipal hero rather than the Iliad's Achilles, who is honorable more than displaying deep intelligence. They both are deserving of immortal fame, but for different virtues. Homer hit on both of them, just in different works. But let's go back in our modern world. The balance of the warrior ethic with civilization is very hard. Spartans and Romans and Macedonians and Persians and Mongols and Apache and Sioux and Maasai and Samurai and Pashtun all share one advantage over us Americans in fully appreciating the warrior culture. They were and are warrior cultures embedded within warrior societies. Make sure you get this. They were warrior cultures embedded within a warrior society. This is not the case in the United States. The American military is a warrior culture embedded within a civilian society. Heck, only 1% of the entire U.S. population will serve in the military. That means 99% of all Americans will have no firsthand understanding of what it means to serve in the military. This state is, in the American view, highly desirable. And it was set up that way intentionally. A too strong military that is unchecked by civilian restraint might actually be inclined to go ahead and exert way too much power. And our Constitution was intentionally set to limit the power of any one group, including the power of the military. Much of this comes from the fact that the colonies had just thrown off the British king and they were very cautious to make sure the colonies just didn't fall back into some overzealous or powerful general or warlord that would declare themselves king or ultimate emperor or ruler. So limiting the military had an overwhelming support actually from the colonists. So the way we're set up is you know our joint chiefs they report to congress and the president is considered the commander in chief and and ultimately all everyone is is accountable to the american people this is the state that the constitution intended and that the founding fathers who were rightly wary of unchecked 
concentrations of powers they had in mind. But it is an interesting state, and one that produces a very interesting effect. Maybe at no other time in history do we suffer such a divide between the warrior ethic and the culture it resides. Civilian society prizes individual freedom. Each man and woman is at liberty to choose his or her own path, rise or fall, do what he or she wants, so long as it doesn't impinge on the liberty of others. The warrior culture, on the other hand, values cohesion and obedience. The soldier or sailor or marine is not free to do whatever he wants. He serves. He's bound to perform his duty. Civilian society rewards wealth and celebrity. Military cultures Military culture prizes honor. Aggression is a valued uh, characteristic in warrior culture. In civilian life, uh, if you take it too far, you might find yourself in jail. A warrior culture trains for adversity. Luxury and ease are the goals advertised to the civilian world. Sacrifice, particularly shared sacrifice, is considered an opportunity for honor in a warrior culture. A civilian politician doesn't dare even utter the words of sacrifice. Selfishness is a virtue in a selflessness is a virtue in the in the warrior culture. Civilian society gives lip service to this, but it frequently acts selfishly as as the need arises. Is it healthy for a society to entrust its defenses to one percent of its population, while the other ninety nine percent Thank its lucky stars that it, does it, that it doesn't have to do any of the dirty work. In many ways, there's great value in this. Specializing war to 1% of the population frees up the physical, intellectual skills of millions to work in other fields to advance society. However, this separation can cause complacency and taking for granted what it requires to keep a functioning democracy, a democracy. And sometimes the brutality of war can be attacked by the civilians who will never find themselves, nor can they even dream of comprehending what it may be like, the violence and brutality of the battlefield. So the warrior ethic, there's so much to unpack here. I mean, literally, in our exploration of the wisdom text, we could probably sit for months studying stories and fables of the warrior ethic. I mean, it is everywhere. There's books, there's fables, there's parables, there's histories, there's doctrines. Uh, but for now, I just hope that this lesson gives you a chance to dig deep into the warrior ethic that emerged from the earliest of our tribal heritage. And I hope you enjoy reading Homer and the Iliad from chapter three. But also, hey, check out that 45-page book, The Warrior Ethos. Lots of really short, quick, amazing stories crossing all civilizations. Uh, in, it's in that additional resources area. It's very easy to read, but it's also a fascinating read. Uh, after you're done with that, as usual, you dive into those discussion questions and respond. I can't wait to see uh, what you have to say there. Look forward to engaging with you. Uh, so enjoy it. And we will see you in the next lesson where we 
where we're going to have a look into some of the indigenous stories from both native North America and of Africa. Uh, We have an awesome set of stories to evaluate in lesson number four. And after you're all done uh, checking out the warrior ethic, we will see you the next time. Have yourself a wonderful day, wonderful week.